Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I knew my family wasn't going to be supportive. That's why I didn't tell them. Because I knew if I told them before, they would talk me out of it. And I knew it also wasn't going to take a lot to talk me out of it because I felt like I had this obligation to serve my family and to make them proud and to do what is expected of me as I had done my whole life up to that point. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. I'm the host of At the End of the Tunnel, which is a podcast that features the backstories of luminaries and artists and people who are out there using their platform or their voice to leave the world better than how they found it, which is not an easy thing to do in a world that seems to be hyper-focused on making as many profits as possible for much of the time. But that's my intention with these interviews, is to introduce you to people who are going above and beyond all of that to make a difference. And it often starts with them breaking with convention and blazing a path of their own. My guest this week started a movement called Culinary Alchemy, where she advocates for functional nutrition in your diet. She is a trained chef and a Reiki master, and she's also got a thriving media platform, which I've been featured on, where she also highlights change makers who are making the world better. Her name is Chef Serena Poon, and what makes Serena's story so fascinating to me is her why. She grew up in an immigrant family, and her father, who loved to cook, was diagnosed with cancer, and she began scouring around for alternative and natural cures. He unfortunately ended up passing away at the young age of 48. Then her mom was diagnosed with cancer. And Serena went on a mission to learn everything she could about the healing power of diet. Meanwhile, her family was hell-bent on Serena becoming a lawyer. So she secretly took out loans to go to culinary school instead, not knowing how it was going to turn out, but feeling like she was being guided by something within and she was choiceless in the matter. Of course, when her family found out, it was this huge drama, but Serena was intent on using the culinary arts as food, as medicine, as comfort, and as love. And she ended up graduating at the top of her class, and then she worked for a slew of celebrities in Los Angeles as she developed her own culinary style that emphasized optimum health over just taste. And during that time, she faced her own health crisis that made her even more committed to her mission, and it also introduced her to Reiki. There's so much more to the story, but I'll let you hear it directly from her. And all I'll say is that there are no throwaway moments, not in Serena's life, 
and possibly not in your life. Before we get into the episode, I want to make sure that you know about and hopefully have a copy of Knowing Where to Look, which is my new book of inspiration. It's full of stories and anecdotes and observations that you can read in a sort of choose your own adventure way, basically whenever you need a boost of inspiration or some additional perspective and you've already listened to all of these podcast episodes. So grab a copy of that when you can. If you already have a copy, make sure to leave a review. In the meantime, let's dive into my conversation with the incomparable chef, Serena Poon. Serena, thank you so much for coming on to At the End of the Tunnel. I'm really looking forward to learning more about your backstory, and I'm honored that you could make the time to join us. No, thank you so much. No, really, it's an honor and it's a blessing to be here. So I'm really grateful to be sharing space with you and your audience. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'd like to start the conversations talking about childhood. Where did you spend your childhood? I was born here, actually. So okay. first generation Chinese American family. I was born in Pasadena. So I kind of I grew up, I was born and raised in LA, but Pasadena is a lot more suburbia. So not LA when you think of LA, not Hollywood, not West Hollywood, much more suburbia neighborhoods, block parties. Did you have a favorite toy or maybe an activity that you were obsessed with when you were a kid? I remember we had these stuffed animals. My sister and I, we each had one. There were these koala bears. So funny that you asked me that. But yeah, it was, I think it was both of our favorites. But we loved koalas and pandas. Now that I think about it, probably from our visits at the zoo when we were young. But it was definitely one of my favorite, favorite toys that I had when I was little. Did that represent something emotional or psychological for you at that time in your life? You said it reminded you of visiting the zoo. What are some of the attributes of the koala bear that most people wouldn't know about? So what what does it conjure up when you think about that? When I think of the koala bear in reference to my childhood, I think of love and I think of family. You know, we did a lot of trips like road trips when we were younger and growing up, we didn't we didn't take as many trips when we were older when I was still in college. So we didn't take any family trips after that. So most of our family trips that we did when we were much younger, and when I think about wall bears, I think about love, I think family, I think security, and I think comfort. It definitely brings me to a warm I actually don't even know all there is to know about koala bears. <laughs> if I'm really honest, we actually adopted a koala bear when there were fires in Australia a couple of years ago. And you could, you could adopt a koala bear and just pay monthly for everything that that koala bear needs. We mm. did that, but it's such an interesting question. So yeah, it just it makes me think of my childhood. You were first generation Chinese-American, which means your parents were immigrants. Do you recall any lessons or philosophies or ideologies that were repeated by your parents in your house growing up to you and your sister? Working hard was, there's several. Um, Working hard is sort of, that is the means to success. Working hard is also just sort of like what you do. 
working hard is what your family gives you the opportunity to do. That was one of them. You know, it's funny because you can work hard and do well, but if you didn't fully excel, that was sort of there too. So if you worked hard, you would excel at the highest level. And if you didn't, then maybe you didn't work hard enough. Was taking care of yourself a part of that? Like when you, as a young person, you observed your parents obviously working hard. Were they neglecting themselves in order to provide for the family? And so was that part of the subconscious messaging? Like your health doesn't really matter or anything like that. You just have to do what you have to do. Yeah, that definitely was. I don't know if it was as much that your health didn't matter. It was more that there wasn't this understanding how much your health does matter. So it was almost like your health mattered because you function, but the way we embrace health now, the way I embrace health now is different from the understanding that I had about health. Before health, growing up, it was just like, if you had health, you didn't get sick. You know, and that there's a giant gap between them. There's a giant gap between being sick, being healthy, not getting sick. There's self-care that I didn't learn that word until much later. That definitely wasn't part of my upbringing. There was a lot of self-sacrifice. That would be a mantra, I would say, that I grew up with. The notion that there's a lot of pride and honor in self-sacrifice. There's an honor to the family that you maintain. There's an honor to your elders. So honoring your elders, whether it's your parents or your aunties and uncles or your grandparents or people of authority, that was really important. Not dishonoring the family, not shaming, not doing anything that would cause any sort of grievance to someone else. So it's okay to put yourself out. So as long as you're not putting someone else out. Coming from a Chinese culture, even though you didn't live in China at all, but still your parents were coming from that culture. Was there anything about the way you guys viewed the world that conflicted with coming up in this American culture? You came home and like, mom, I don't understand why these people are doing it this way. Mm. Yes, I would say that I grew up around friends. And let's see, when I was in grade school, there weren't that many Chinese or Asian kids at school. And then from junior high, I moved moved into a different school district. And there was a lot more. It was almost 60-40. What I grew up around was... My friend's parents, there was a lot of yes, the way they grew up. The way I grew up, there was just a lot of fear. You know, like you said no to things because you didn't know if you could carry out a yes. You said no if it was an unknown. You said no if it was something you'd never done before. You said no if it was something you're unfamiliar with. You said no if it made your parents uncomfortable. You just said no first. It was very much no first. And that was so different than what I experienced around me at school and with my friends, like say friends who grew up in it with a different ethnic background, my friends who were American or who were, you know, say Caucasian background. So, so that was a big thing that I noticed where there was a lot of yes from what I observed when I wasn't interacting with my family. And then 
a lot more no's or if there was a yes, it was kind of like a yes, but, and there were certain priorities that always came first. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. In doing my research, I heard you mention that the kitchen was the center of your household. What did you mean by that? The kitchen was just where the family came together we ate in our kitchen. It wasn't like we had, I mean, we didn't have a separate dining room. Then the separate dining room was more like a formal dining room. And we'd have like a kitchen area. My parents ended up building sort of like a bar area where we had stools. And and so it's a part of the kitchen. So the kitchen was where we came together at the end of the day, after work or after school. The kitchen was where my dad liked to spend time sort of creating so the kitchen was a place of creation. It's where I used to watch him cook. Where my grandmother, who was very, very close to my dad's mom, she used to, you know, make our after-school snacks there. And that's kind of the first place we went to when you came in from the door after school. You went to the kitchen first, and you got a snack, and that's where she created, and where I spent a lot of time watching her. And when we had big gatherings, when we had family gatherings, the kitchen was just sort of where everyone would just percolate and where where everyone would just hang out in. So not as much the living room or the family room or the TV room or outside. It was always kind of the kitchen. And I think obviously it's sort of because of food and everyone kind of had their hands into the creation process. And I am a foodie. I grew up a foodie. My daddy was definitely a foodie. My grandma was a foodie. And so I think that there was just a lot of joy in that room of the house and kind of where we always came together. I know you're a chef now, but you didn't Mm -hmm. grow up wanting to be a chef. I know your parents wanted you to be something specific, but what did you, Serena, the kid, want to be when you grew up? When I was little, when I was really young, 
I thought I wanted to be an archaeologist because I grew up watching Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones and all those movies. And I, I thought I wanted to be an archaeologist. And that's literally what I thought until I started volunteering at a hospital. My daddy worked as a microbiologist at a local hospital, at, you know, Pasadena in the Huntington Memorial Hospital. And I volunteered there as a candy striper. And I did that, I think, starting in maybe my freshman year in high mm-hmm. school. And I think because my dad didn't get a chance to further his education and become a doctor, he very much actually wanted to become a doctor. That was sort of already in the horizon of what my parents wanted me to do. But then I started volunteering at the hospital and it just felt like a space that I wanted to be in. But I mean, if I'm really, really honest, I'm not 100% sure if that was 100% what I wanted or what I thought I wanted because this would make my parents happy and it would make my parents proud and my family proud and I would be the first doctor. And inherently, I've always had a desire to help people. That kind of served me in that way where here I would be doing something and I'd be helping kids. So whether or not it was helping by means of being a a doctor or in another way, that part I'm not 100% sure of. But at the time, you know, this was the way I was going to help people. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, make my parents really proud. What was behind the choice to attend UC Berkeley, which is a pretty Uh, prestigious school along the West Coast. So I'm assuming you had great, good grades and you were a good student. In good meaning you, you did all the assignments and you had a nice GPA. I, I was like the model student. <laughs> I lived my role that I felt like I was here to live out. So I was a model student, an athlete, and was in music and then, you know, in student government and all the things. And, you know, one of five students that the faculty picks out and plucks out and puts at the fundraising parties for parents. So that was definitely me. And by the time I went to college, I actually went to go to study law. And it was so interesting, that pivot for me from wanting to be a pediatrician to being an attorney. It was an experience that I had as a candy striper in labor and delivery. And I didn't think that I could go through the process of being a medical doctor and what what you do when you're in medical school, you know, with biology and the human physiology and what I learned that you had to do as a medical student. I didn't think I could go through that. Then I decided to be the next best thing in a Chinese family, which is an attorney. And so that's why I said pretty why why I decided to be pre-law and I went to UC Berkeley because it was one of the best schools that I'd got into. It was between that or UCLA. I wanted a little bit of freedom, so I wanted to go further away. And at the same time, it cost a lot less than a private university. So for my parents, it also just made a lot more sense. And it was far enough away where I felt like I had some sense of freedom, but not so far away that my mom would stress out and, and have any objections to it. I know that they preferred that I stay in state. And it's a great school. So, Were you able to get a scholarship? 
No, I didn't get a scholarship. I got something like a small scholarship. I had, I had small scholarships, but I didn't have a full scholarship from the university or like a partial scholarship from the university. I'd gotten different scholarships that I was able to apply towards my tuition to the university. those four years, you're fully thinking, okay, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to finish my undergrad, take the LSAT, enroll in a law school somewhere, but then life threw you a curveball. Yeah, I really did. I studied other things because I had an interest. I studied nutrition because I had an interest in it. I studied astrology. I mean, I studied all these things just because I really had an interest, but what I was there to do was to graduate with a political science degree, a minor in history if I had time for it, and then study and take the LSAT and go to law school. So that was why I was there. And then my senior year in college, my daddy was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer and then when everything changed. What were the symptoms? We don't have to get too deep into this, but mm-hmm. did he complain about certain things and then somebody told him you, should, you need to go to the doctor and get checked up or was this just completely out of the blue? He was going to get checked up anyway. And the doctor goes, guess what? This is happening. So he had hepatitis B, blood disease, and virtually his grandpa had, had it as well. And his grandpa had died from liver cancer. So he was checking on this throughout his life, throughout his adult mm-hmm. life. And somehow between two six-month checkups, he went from, he was fine. And then six months later, he was stage four. I was in school at the time. It was uh, during the school year. I really don't know of all the symptoms because I wasn't there for it. I know that I came home for like a weekend or a break. There was a different car in the driveway. And my parents told me, my dad got a new car when really he had crashed his car in a parking lot. You know, at this point, probably because the cancer was well underway and he thought it was from exhaustion because he had taken up a second job to help pay for the tuition bills for me. And then my sister was going to be starting her freshman year that following year. And so he picked up a second job And sometimes it would be after working nine to five at the hospital, he would go to Cal State LA and he was an associate professor there. They're like an adjunct, you know, like a visiting professor. So there's a lot of work to that with the papers and lectures and everything he did as a professor. And he was just so exhausted, probably because the cancer had, again, was already well in his system. He crashed into a pillar inside a parking garage. And so that would have been some of the first indicators, although in very true Chinese American family fashion, my parents didn't tell me anything until he had received that diagnosis and it was still probably a little bit of time. She had seen him before they told me and he he looked like he had lost a little bit of hair, like he didn't 
have his same energy. So I think I intuitively knew that something wasn't right, but I didn't know how wrong it was. What was your reaction for yourself? Because you mentioned that as a traditional Chinese family, mm-hmm. there are some expectations, right? Mm-hmm. For the daughters. And, and so how did that news oh, yeah. hit you? When our parents told us, they had actually said that the prognosis was five years. When really they added on five years, but it was just <laughs> your parents like, added on five years to the prognosis. Yeah, this is just what they were telling my sister and I. His prognosis was much worse than that, but they pulled my sister in my five years. When they pulled us, I think I was just trying to figure out like, what can I do? Like, how could this happen? What can we do for him? And I knew so little about medicine, I knew so little about cancer, I knew so little about health at that point. I really didn't know what to do. But in terms of answering your question about as the daughter, first generation daughter in this family, I felt like I had to get a really good job. So I had to be, I had to get a great job in a top law firm. I had to get married and probably have a baby in the next five years so that my dad could have all these things. You know, if they said that he only had five years. So I felt that, okay, I need to fast track my life into making sure all these things happen in the next five years. That was my reaction to what I needed to do and how I could, how I could show up in that way. But I would say that my primary thoughts were how we're going to save him and thinking that we were somehow going to be able to do that. What was the plan to save him? Food and nutrition and herbs and remedies kind of came later. It mm-hmm. was more finding the right doctor for him, which he, he actually had a great doctor. It was a doctor that he knew already just from the hospital, someone that he already kind of knew. It was trying to find him and trying to get him on the transplant list and seeing if that was possible. And it wasn't because he just had so many tumors there. And then thinking that maybe if we found him an organ donor, even if he wasn't on the transfer, just not having an awareness then of everything that goes into that process. So I would say that at the time, the things that I was thinking that I could do to contribute were barely tangible because I had no understanding or true knowledge of this whole process. And this was before I really dived into before I studied food as medicine and before I studied, you know, the art of food and the nutrition that I'd studied was limited because it was just what I'd studied in college, a little bit of it. I kind of shifted from, okay, so if we can't figure out how we're going to heal him or save him, I'm going to let the doctors work on their part of that. What can I do to help him feel better? Because he was in so much pain all the time and he was suffering mm. so it was about how can we lessen his suffering how can we lessen his suffering how can we help him in any way that we can and hoping that these things that we were that we're doing to help him could do more than what they were telling us was possible i'm sure you've run this scenario in your own head maybe several times but I, I'm curious, and we're going to get more into what you're doing now, but knowing everything you know now, if you had to go back 
and relive that period of time, that year and three months, mm-hmm. would you have done anything differently oh, in the way yeah. that you would have approached your dad's diagnosis and prognosis? Oh, yeah, completely. What I grew up with was what we know as kind of traditional alopecia care, diagnostic care. And that's what my dad believed as well. That's what my mom believed. And and that's what I grew up with. So if you have a problem, you go to the doctor, you get medicine or you have surgery. And this is how you're going to get better. My parents are, you know, Chinese. And so my parents still use traditional Chinese medicine. So they still drank these Chinese herbal teas during both my parents had cancer, right? My mom had it after my dad passed. And so they did both. So there was this awareness of this type of medicine, this type of remedy, because it was just part of their upbringing, mm-hmm. but not an awareness of the power of nutrition and all these other practices that have now come into my life that I know have such healing powers, you know, the, the healing potential and capacity for other modalities and how we feed our bodies is so different now. And I would completely approach it so differently. That just wasn't there. We weren't, didn't have the education, didn't have that awareness at all. And I think that it would made a really big difference. Stress management, I would say, is probably one of the biggest things that I look back at both both of my parents, the fact that it didn't exist, they didn't have tools that I now have or that I've learned through this journey. Meditation, right? I mean, that wasn't something my parents talked about. I didn't even grow up with that word in my vocabulary until I was, you know, a young adult. And just not having any tools to really manage or mitigate their stress I think it's one one of the biggest reasons they both have cancer uh, mm. beyond beyond diet and maybe genetic markers. I mean, my mom had no genetic markers for cancer. No one on her side of the family ever had cancer, even still to this day. None of her siblings, her parents didn't. But I believe that stress was probably the reason why she ended up having cancer. Yeah, it sounds like she had a broken heart because you mentioned in my research, at least, that yeah. he was her soulmate. Like they oh, yeah. loved each other, you know, yeah, to my death. hasn't been with anyone since she lost my dad at 45. And she's has not had another companion since. So she was able to recover from her ovarian cancer. Yeah, she was. I mean, I believe it was a combination of you know, the protocol that the doctors gave her, but I truly believe it was also her angels. I think it was Mm. my dad. I also believe that it wasn't her journey in this life to leave early. I remember when I was in college and I was in my senior year of college, I was obviously thinking about jobs and I was thinking about investment banking, because I was in college in the 90s when everybody wants to be an investment banker or, you know, work in some sort of of office job where you could make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And having your dad pass away at 48 and your mom, who's only two years younger, get cancer. How did that 
change your perspective of success and what you're here to do? I would say that I have the same thoughts of what success meant during the mm-hmm. time as well as you did. That was how I, I viewed being a lawyer. That's how I viewed getting a job at a big law firm. And I actually had, I'd secured an internship, you know, a summer job before my daddy was diagnosed. And it was at a, you know, at a big law firm in San Francisco at the time. And so that was what I viewed as success. You know, you, you get yourself into a big law firm with a big name and you just work super hard, you work your way up and then you become a partner. That's what I thought. And that's what I thought would make my family proud and bring respect to our family name and all of that. And then when this happened with my parents, it was almost like the world shape-shifted. Everything just crumbled away. And I had two reasons for existing. I'm not saying this is the healthiest mentality, but this is what I thought at the time. I had two reasons. And it was make sure that everyone that I love is healthy and happy at whatever cost, whatever it took so that no one else got sick. No one else had to suffer. No one else had to have broken hearts. And it was sort of like, well, how am I going to do this? I'm either going to do it because I make a, a bunch of money as a lawyer, and then I can go to culinary school as the gift to myself after I've paid off all my loans. And like, this is what I'll do and make one of my dad's dreams come true, which he didn't get to, which is he thought he would retire and have like a little mom and pop shop with my mom, you know, just like a place where he could just play with food, make food and do something casual and simple that he could do with my mom. That was sort of what he dreamt about having after he could retire from his profession as a microbiologist at the hospital. And I thought I would do that. And then I thought I would use what I learned in a different way. But it was all coming after I made a bunch of money as a lawyer in a big law firm, doing all these things to check off this, this box. None of that seemed to really matter anywhere close to the same. And not only that, I had had insight to insight to this at a young age of the relationships that you have with people. Having this amazing job at a law firm was nothing compared to having another night with my dad or the time I spent with him or with my parents that last couple of years, like I realized that all these ideas and things that we are, are put in our heads, whether they're intentionally or not, or just sort of like peripheral sort of information that comes into us about what is important, all melted away. And all that mattered to me were that the people that I love were healthy and happy. And that seems like kind of ambiguous, but that was just, those were the two categories that I could see, like, this is what matters to me now in life are these two things. And anything that I was doing was sort of just a means or ways to make that happen. So I was going to do this because this is going to help make someone in my life that I care about happy. It just, 
simplified itself. And what became important to me was different than what was important to my peers at the time in the same like age group, because no one else had lost a parent. No one else had experienced any type of loss in my peer group. And so it was really hard to communicate that this is what was now important to me because no one else could really relate. And it seemed very heavy, you know, it kind of seemed heavy that it was this, that you weren't going to enjoy other things in life unless it fell into these two categories. But again, I didn't have, I would say like the full outlook on it. It was just kind of very honed in. And these are the, this is what happened in my life in the last couple of years. And so this is what's important and nothing else. There are other things that are equally important. Because not a lot of other people around you could relate, who was guiding you or mentoring you or who did you bounce things off with? Like, should I go to culinary school or should I go to law school? Like, who are you talking to about this? Was your grandmother still around? Was there anyone else around you that you could talk to about these kinds of things to get objective feedback? Not really. Now that I think about it, I really made the decision for culinary school by myself Mm -hmm. because one of the promises I had made to my dad and to my mom and to my family was that I was still going to live. I was still going to do this. I was still going to go to law school and become this attorney. I was still going to be the first attorney in the family. This is, you know, before my dad had passed. And it was one of, he had a couple of things he sort of really wanted to know that was going to happen. That was one of them. And not ending up with one a boy that I had been dating. He said, don't marry him. <laughs> and I want you to still be a attorney. These are like two big promises that I, that I had made. And so when I started looking at culinary schools and sort of looking at what it would take to get in and looking at all the different schools and the programs and it maybe kind of bounced it off of some of my friends at the time and they weren't friends that had been with me through the journey. Those friends were still up North. They were like my college friends. And I moved back down to Southern California for my parents and kind of had some different friends. There are a couple of friends that we had gone to the same high school that were still down in the area. And I had run that by them as well, but it was sort of like, I really didn't get guidance. And when I did speak, when I did make that decision, took out the loans, put my name on the dotted line, it wasn't until I'd done that that I told my mom and I shared with my grandmother and my aunts. And it wasn't received well. Did you or did you not go to law school? I didn't. I went to culinary school instead. Okay. So you have all these loans from Berkeley. No, no. I, have, I, I had loans for, I took out for culinary school, not for law school. No, 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 no. I'm talking about undergraduate. I thought you had oh, loans yeah. from undergraduate school. Well, I only had some because my parents really helped me through school. Okay. So my parents- and you made this deathbed promise to your dad that you were going to go to law school. Yeah. And but you decided to go to culinary school. This is sound like a really big leap of faith. And then you have to take loans out 
on top yeah. of that to go to culinary school, yeah. which I'm assuming is not cheap. No, it was not. And because it's not a master's program. So if you already have your bachelor's, you don't get the same loans if you're going to say it was considered a trade school, you know, it's an associate's program. So it's different. So there loans, like you're taking out loans on your credit card. That was pretty much how it was. So what was the plan? Was the plan, I'm going to graduate and get a job, open up my own restaurant, fulfill my dad's other wish to have this little mom and pop cafe and I'm going to make money back? Or were you just like, I'm going to leap and we're just going to see what happens. And I know it's all going to work out. It was a couple things. So I definitely wanted to live out my dad's function. You know, that was one of the driving forces of making that decision. The other one was that I had lost this passion for what I thought I was going to do as an attorney because I didn't feel that I was going to have the same impact with that skill set. This is what I thought then. Not to say that I wouldn't have, but this is, well, I mean, I, I followed my journey, so this is where I am now. So I don't know if I would have had the same impact if I if I'd gone to law school, but even though that's what I promised, even though that's what almost my family I would do, even though that's what I was expected to do, I just didn't have it in my heart the same way that I had before. I just felt like there was something that I was going to be able to do to contribute in a better way by going this route. It didn't really make a lot of sense. I fully knew that my family wasn't going to be supportive. So, Not even your sister? Was she, was she in your corner? No, I mean, my sister was trying to just, she was just trying to survive on her own. She was trying to graduate from college with a broken heart. And she was just trying to deal with herself. But I knew my family wasn't going to be supportive. That's why I didn't tell them. Because I knew if I told them before, they would talk me out of it. And I knew it also wasn't going to take a lot to talk me out of it because... I felt like I had this obligation to serve my family and to keep make them proud and to do what is expected of me as I had done my whole life up to that point. So I knew that they weren't going to be supportive of it, which they weren't. You know, when I told them, it was not well received when I told them that I was now going to go to culinary school. How did you break the news? Did you guys go out to a meal or something? Or you just came in one day and your mom was in the kitchen. You said, I got something to tell you. You know, I think that's literally how I told her. I can't even remember right now at this moment, but I I think that was kind of how I told her because I was going to have to start school soon. And, you know, I taken out my loans. I was getting my materials and I was starting school soon. And so I had to tell her that, it was going to be going to culinary school, but I do remember, you know, everyone, everyone was really upset because culturally, I think they perceived the chef as like a cook, like a line mm. of like you're in service <laughs> kitchen. Right, it a sizzler a or something. Blue collar, yeah, it is a blue collar job. It is not what your parents sacrificed so much, you know, for you to do to give you this opportunity for you know, a better life or higher level of education to have opportunities that come with all of them. And here you are, you're going to go do something that you didn't need to go to Berkeley to do. Your parents didn't have to 
slave away to pay for your tuition for you to do like this isn't it was just that perception that I think what they saw as cooks and chefs in Hong Kong that's what they thought of when they heard the word chef this is what they had in their mind is what they grew up seeing in these little restaurants I'm sure you didn't need the inspiration because it sounds like you were already used to pushing yourself but I'm sure it didn't hurt that they rejected it and that kind of inspired you to become the best oh, yeah. chef in your class because you you graduated in the top five right oh yeah i think i was one or two i think it was mm-hmm. me and brian were kind of tied head to head um the whole time okay so tell me what does it take because it's, it's different from school right chef is about skill oh. and talent and measuring things with your eyes and taste like so that's different from just going pre-law like what does it, it take to become a, a top chef thing. oh my gosh i mean i had no idea what i was expecting and you know i remember an aunt actually my mom and my aunt actually probably everybody i think my grandma said it too they were they were all like go work in a kitchen before you go to culinary school before <laughs> you ruin your life go work in a kitchen. You've never even worked in a restaurant. You've never worked in a kitchen. You don't know what it's like. You know how hard it is. You're not going to be able to handle it. Like you've no idea what you're doing. You're just, you've lost your mind. You know, it was very much like you're having a, you're having a mid twenties crisis right now and mm. you you don't know what you're doing and you're going to regret it. That was kind of the point I was getting. And I don't know. I just, I thought I could do it. It was just, I just felt really pulled to that. And I felt that there was something more than just being a cook. I felt that I had seen what my dad, what my parents went through. I felt like there was so, there was so much more that I could have done that we could have done if we just had that knowledge and that food didn't have to be food, especially for someone who's not well, was any sort of health challenge doesn't have to be bland and awful and miserable and a punishment. And when I got to culinary school, it was no joke. No joke. My eyelashes burnt off. I like lost half my eyebrows. I mean, it was no joke. It was so hard. And I was in the morning session. So you had to be, I lived in Hermosa schools in Pasadena. I used to be up there by like 6 a.m. every day. And it was so physically taxing. I mean, that's something that you got to prepare yourself. It is so labor intensive, so physically taxing. You're on your feet. You're over and in and out of super high heat for hours. And I'm smaller than I am now. I was, I was barely a hundred pounds at the time, just because we had lost a lot of weight, obviously from our parents having an ill and just, just the stress. So I was barely a hundred pounds, the big stock pots themselves are about a third of my weight. And then you had to like fill them with water and you were on your own. You just had to like step up and bring it because especially for women in the kitchen, it's traditionally been in a French kitchen because it was Le Cordon Bleu. So the kitchen and especially the French kitchen at that time has been very traditionally a male dominated space. If you wanted to earn your respect, if you wanted to make it in that environment, you had to bring it. Like you had to show that you could. And that was that was tough. It was a great experience, but it was definitely a good experience. Just just the physical part of it was really hard. But 
it taught me a lot. I mean, so many skills that you learn outside of what you learn in school when you're just studying, you know, you, you really, all your senses become so acute, you know, you're reading people by their response to the meals you prepare by all their different senses. So you learn to speak another language almost. You're not just hearing and communicating with words and sounds. You're seeing the response by way of their eyes. You can tell when someone's face lights up because they like what they're seeing. They like what they smell. They like what they taste. I mean, those are all different ways that we communicate, which is, I think, you know, why I was always so drawn to food in the first place. Because it was just that bridge, you know, it just, it's that bridge, no matter who is sharing the meal with you, you're eating the same food and you're both kind of there for the same reason. And you can be a different genders, different, um, could be small or large age gaps. You could do different things. You could have different backgrounds, different ethnicities, but when you're breaking bread and you're, you're sharing a meal and you both enjoy it, like you're connected and that's just something really beautiful that I've always found in food and in the energy around food and a kitchen. And there's a creation of love that's there. And it's more tangible to me now, of course, with what I do than it was to me even then. But I think I had an awareness of it and just didn't know what that energy was. I didn't know, didn't realize like what is being created. I had another chef on the podcast and he talked about how harsh the language, the communication can be in a kitchen between a junior chef and a top chef and how the feedback you get can be pretty, pretty harsh. And you have to be able to take feedback really well because all they want to hear you say is yes, chef. Yep. That's Was that your experience? All you say is yes, chef, no chef. There's no, that's it. It's, <laughs> There's no explanation. If especially if you're classically trained, it is yes, chef, no chef. And that's mm. it. And then I don't know, chef is not a good answer, but it's either yes, chef or no <laughs> chef. Right, right away, chef. That's another thing that you can say. You know, when you're in school, it's a little different. They kind of tell you all the reasons why. And it depends on the instructor. Some instructors are great. I had a, I had a, I had some really tough instructors, and then I had some instructors that were a little bit more lax, and then I had some sh- instructors that really loved to educate. You know, so they were some. Of, I think the chef, the instructors that were really tough were kind of chef first, teacher second, and then I had some chefs that were educators first. So they do tell you, but you're a hundred percent right, and especially if you are in a kitchen that is run in a very traditional way that the language, the energy, it is very harsh. Like you really have to have a thick skin. Like you've got to be able to hold your own for sure. Male, female, doesn't matter what you are, who you are. You've got to be able to hold your own. And I learned that. And sometimes people aren't going to like the food that you create. And so it's also being able to have a thick skin around that and grow confidence with knowing that you know what you're doing. And it's, it's it, something, that, something that you can create could be great and someone may not like it. Is it a supportive environment among classmates or is it competitive? Because you mentioned there's yeah. rankings top, second, third in the class. Oh, yeah. like, are you guys supporting each other or is it like... I'm going to sab- okay. put some salt in her soup oh, yeah, so it's no. too salty. <laughs> no, no. It was actually a really supportive environment. It was supportive competition, you know? So we were, it, it was definitely a supportive environment because you're in the grind together. 
And even though so much of school, you are making your own dishes, there's a lot of collaborative training as well. Because the phrase, it takes a village that really applies to a kitchen. Like it Mm. really does. Every single person's job is important from the dishwasher all the way through every single station in the kitchen to the front of the house, to the hostess. Like every single person's position is very, very important. And you need the whole team to function and you need everyone to step up to what their responsibilities are in order to have a well-functioning restaurant or kitchen. You're having experience in the kitchen as opposed to not having any prior to enrolling in culinary school. Are you feeling like this is your path at this point? Or do you have an idea of where this is going to lead you? Because I want you to talk about the Astage that you were part of. You were one of the top five selected to be a part of that. Because I know that kind of helps to guide you a bit. But I'm just curious, as you were going through the process of this two-year program, how did you feel regarding your path being culinary? It was so hard when I was going through school (laughs) that I think I was literally just trying to get through school. And then it was like, I've got to get through school. And I've got these massive loans. And I definitely had moments where I was like, what did I do? Minimum wage was, I think, $7 an hour or something. Mm-hmm. And here I have $50,000 plus worth of loans, you know, for culinary school. And... It was interesting. I had different thoughts. You know, I had, what did I do? Did I make the right decision? And there was that stubborn errors in me that was like, no, I'm sticking through this because I made this decision. And I can't be wrong about this. You know, so there was, there was that part, right? That kind of helped push me through. There was a fact that I made such a massive investment, not just financially, but emotionally, physically. I made an investment on the relationship with my family because it was definitely a strain on my relationships with my family, with my mom, even with my grandparents. I was the eternal student. I mean, I was still a student in college, you know, when they introduced me, if they ran into their friends in Chinatown or wherever for a good few years. You became the black sheep of the family. Yeah. I went from like, you know, shiny gold to black. Definitely. And then I was also not a good example to my cousins who, Mm -hmm we're all on this path to also have very academic, you know, sort of professional careers following the footsteps of the attorney that didn't become an attorney. So it was yeah, also, you were the oldest cousin, right? And the oldest yeah. sister. Yeah. So I was kind of like leading them astray by doing mm. this. So I did have those thoughts for sure. And I didn't know how I was going to make this all work. I knew I loved what I was doing. So I knew I love food. And I think I also felt very connected to my dad who loved food. And I think, not that I think I know, it took my heart so many years to heal from, you know, that experience with my dad and like what he went through and what our family had gone through. So I would grasp at different things that I felt connected me to my dad, not knowing what I know now, which is now if I want to connect with him, I can just connect with him or I can sit in prayer or meditation or a journal, or I could literally just 
connect with him in some way. Then I couldn't. So it was, I held on to all the things my dad gave me. You know, I, I, I had tangible keepsakes that I, I held on to all these things. And I think that cooking was a way that I was connecting to my dad. And doing something in that space, I felt like was a way I was connecting to my dad. I didn't know how or what I was going to do when I came out. And it wasn't until, you know, I had some thoughts of it when I was in culinary school. I had some thoughts of, would I be a teacher like some of my teachers are? Would I do things? Would I work in a restaurant? Would I do private? What would I do? Would I have? I don't even know if shows existed then. Maybe they did. I don't. I don't even remember. Oh no, they did. I'm not that old. They did. And like Top Chef and then Iron Chef and all of that. Iron so, Chef, yes, because I used to watch that with my dad. We used to watch that. It was the Japanese version, so we used to mm-hmm. watch it with subtitles. We used to watch the very first iteration of Iron Chef when it was all in Japanese and. Uh, we used to watch that together. So it's interesting because I used to watch all those cooking shows until I went to culinary school and then I stopped watching them because it was just a different reality when you're actually in school and in the kitchen. <laughs> so I kind of stopped watching them. So yes, cooking shows absolutely existed. They have forever. I'm forgetting that we have Julia Child. And I considered that as well. And that was that was definitely something that was in my journey that I rarely share. But you know that was all part of my journey as well, kind of testing whether or not that was what I was going to do. But yes, your reference to the estage, I think that's really what kind of gave me insight into what I was going to do. So what is an estage? It's like an internship. It, and it doesn't have a specific duration of time. It could be a day, it could be a weekend, a week. And it's just where you're like an apprentice. So it's like a mini internship, basically. And I did mine at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And that's when, you know, every year that the school was around, it wasn't around for that many years, but every year that they, they were around, they would take the top few students and they would do this estage, this very mini internship, so to speak, where we're basically apprentices at the Beverly Hills Hotel in preparation for the night before party. And that was the night before the Oscars party. And and there's that part. We don't have a party like that anymore. Then they did. And it was very well known. It was an annual thing. And so, yeah, so they took the top few of us and we prepared. So there's events that lead up to that night. And so, you know, we were a part of the prep process, not service, but, uh, well, because service, you have service, but we were part of all the preparation for them. And then we were part of that night where we would obviously, you know, we prepared the food that went out for that night for that party. And then we were also stationed at different locations for that party. And you met Indiana Jones. I did. I did. I met my hero that night. You know what? He helped me decide what I wanted to do. It was validation. It was like, you know, that. So I believe that when we come into this life, we are encoded with different signs that help us navigate along our paths. And I think that is not an accident that Indiana Jones was one of your inspirations as a child. And then you end up crossing paths with 
yeah. Indiana Jones, yeah, <laughs> right I when mean, you're at this moment where you're like, what am I going to do with this thing yes, that I have? Yes. And yeah, 100%. I mean, he really was. He was my hero growing up because he was in all the, not just Indiana Jones, he was on solo. I mean, he was just my hero. And that Harrison night, Ford, by the way, is who we're talking yes. about. And for those of you who don't know who Indiana Jones was, oh my goodness, the actor Harrison Ford, you need to go look it up because he was awesome. So, yes, Harrison Ford. And I remember that night I'm walking around this party and I'm looking around at the people and you know, sometimes you have memories, but you can be you can be in a moment and everything still looks slow mo. It's a little hard to explain, but I, I think you know what I mean. Where sometimes you're in a moment and there's like a stillness that happens around you, and everything sort of seems to be like you are in the movie, but you're not in the movie. Mm-hmm. You it's know? like an outer body experience. Yeah, almost. yeah, almost. And so I remember feeling that. When I was walking around this party, I remember seeing Halle Berry. And I just remember seeing some of these giant stars. And I don't remember the music because I don't think I could even hear the music at the time when I was walking around and seeing this. I just remember these faces. And then I was at my station, my shrimp scampi station. And I'm cooking shrimp scampi. So proud of this dish. It's something that I really perfected while I was in school. I think it was one of the things I, I you know, volunteered. This is what I would do. And I look up and it's Indiana Jones. It's Indiana Jones standing in front of me. And I remember Calista Flockhart was like kind of sort of behind him, like peeking around his side. And he was waiting for the shrimp scampi. And I served it up. I made it for him. We made, it, we made everything, obviously, to each person fresh to order. It took a couple minutes. I served it to him and the idiot thought it was so good and gave me compliments. And that was when I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. I, I want to be cooking for <laughs> my hero. I was like, I want to be cooking for Indiana Jones. Like, this is amazing. And so, yes, he absolutely came on this pivotal moment because that was when we're sort of coming to the end of school and we had to choose an internship somewhere. And your internship sort of wrapped up school for you. So it was from that that I made the decision instead of applying for an internship and doing an internship at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which is probably what I would have done at that moment and not realize they should not come to pass. I instead chose to do my internship at the Playboy Mansion. You know, I applied and chose to do that internship there to work for months in a much different environment. So you went to a job fair, apparently, and they were one of the booths that was looking for junior chefs or interns. Why did you choose the Playboy Mansion? What did it represent as a young chef? Because I'm sure there was some sort of professional consideration. You know, a lot of times people would be surprised. These are where you can like really do your best work at at these kind of smaller, intimate places. But why, why the Playboy Mansion? So for a few reasons, I had now made this decision that I wanted to work. I didn't want to work in a big commercial kitchen, even though I had spent three, four days before meeting Indiana Jones. I saw how the Beverly Hills Hotel was run. I was just blown. I hadn't seen that yet as a student, just the way. And that's one of we have a lot of amazing hotels now, but at the time, this is like the hotel in Beverly Hills, is the hotel in LA, and just the way everything was run. And I thought, 
And so that moment, but that's where I wanted to be. I want to be at a very high end, you know, high end, well-respected place where I was going to have the best education that would, you know, I'm always furthering my education, education in the workplace. And then when I realized I don't want to work in this, in a big commercial kitchen, Mm-hmm. I, I, even though it's amazing that we literally dished 439 entrees in 15 minutes flat. And that went to this massive banquet room, which I was just blown by. I'd never done that before. And I was part of this team of like, you know, six, seven people. We plated up all this food. It's still went apart to a banquet room. I realized that I needed to further my education in an environment where I'm not doing commercial work like that. I'm not doing large, large numbers like that. I'm doing more one-on-one. I'm doing two-on-one, 10-on-one, 30. And the nice thing at the Playboy Mansion is it also gave me the option of preparing for parties of two, three, four, five hundred, sixteen hundred people. I was able to do all of it. And when I was also able to have that rapport because it's a smaller kitchen, it's a smaller environment, you're in his home. It actually was really legitimately like a home kitchen. They changed mm-hmm. out a couple appliances, but the kitchen itself was really small, even though it's, it's this massive estate. The kitchen itself was probably smaller than most kitchens you see these days. And having the ability to work in that environment was something that was attractive to me. The second thing that was attractive to me was the fact that as an intern there, at the mansion, I got to design menus. So I wasn't just prepping. I wasn't just peeling potatoes and onions. And I wasn't just doing prep work for the chefs, like the chef de cuisine or the head chef or just any of the other chefs that had more experience than me. I wasn't just doing the prep work, which is typically what happens when you're in a commercial kitchen or restaurant or especially in a hotel. There's like tiers, right? Everyone kind of starts at the bottom rung. And at the mansion, I was able to design menus. You know, I could create a menu. I could work with vendors and order the products that I needed. And I would run the kitchen. You know, I work obviously with like the chef de cuisine or the sous chef and they would help me, but we would run the kitchen for that night because that was, that would be my night, whether it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever night of the week it would be, where there would be a dinner party for say 30 people. I had the opportunity to learn that way. So I love that. And just the opportunity to learn and grow in that environment was unlike any of the other experience from what I could tell as a student and as an intern. I mean, I think what they give you, the tasks they give you to do and the freedom that they give you to create was something that I didn't think some of these other restaurants or hotels would give me because everyone has a food cost. When you're working for Hef, food cost is in quotes. It's not quite the same as when you're working a big hotel chain or a big restaurant. So that all sounds great to me. I get it. But what did your mom think? Or were you not even mentioning that you were going oh. to the Playboy Mansion tour? <laughs> oh my God. So it was like, okay, you made this decision that you're going to go be a cook, right? Because it wasn't a cook. You're going to go be a cook, right? And then now you're going to go work for a pervert. Okay. <laughs> this is not what your dad would. Your, your dad, dad is turning in his grave. Exactly. You know. Like, this is not what your dad wanted for you. Like, this is just, it was not received well. Because 
my mom is very conservative and just being Chinese and her generation as well. And she's Sichuanese on top of it. And her family is very conservative. She's very conservative. Well, she can't she brag about you. She can't, she can't go to her friends and say, my daughter works at the Playboy Mansion. She's a no. cook. No, yeah, you know? that was, it was not, there's no good. That's why I was a student for a long time. I'm telling you, <laughs> like her, my, her friend would ask my grandparents, friends, they would ask them and it was like, oh, she's still in school. You know, I never thought I'm getting my graduate degree somewhere, but really I'm working for the pervert at the big right. house. In but from Beverly a Hills. professional standpoint, this sounds like one of the best jobs a new chef could get. I mean, if I were to give advice to, let's say, a culinary student, if they want to take their path in a direction of uh, private catering, private chefing, if they want to be in that sort of personal chef space, then I would say, yeah, you want to go work for someone in the private sector that has a big enough staff and has enough events that you can have that kind of experience. So that was one of the really fortunate things about working for working at the mansion. And well, there were a lot of people that kind of came through and it was more the glitz and glam of working at the mansion that they were sort of mesmerized by. And like, that's why they were there. They didn't get the same type of experience that I did mm-hmm. you know, for me. Working at the mansion meant that I, it was like a playground for what I needed to do in terms of my education with food. Here I had, I had the authority to order whatever I needed for the next day or that weekend. I had the authority to order any products that I wanted. And because I'm ordering it for Hugh Hefner, we got it in a day or two. We had access to the best ingredients, the best products in the whole world. And you don't have that kind of access if you're working in a kitchen that has, you know, a tight, small margins and a tight food cost and they don't necessarily even have access to that. And so that was, that was another one of the great things about working at the Playboy Mansion was that it was that we just had access. And but you're, you're also working back of house, which is not glamorous usually. So I'm sure yeah. a day for you, you're not like hanging out in the mansion. You're like in the kitchen <laughs> slaving away. Mm-hmm. And not even yeah. serving the food and going out, but probably the people who are doing that for you. So you're literally just taking orders and just preparing food, right? Yeah, you're just in the kitchen. I mean, I would still circulate the parties because I, I like to see what's going on. And I was also chef de party for a couple of the really big parties, which means you actually aren't you are circulating the party because you're, you're managing the party. And on the days of the big parties, we would have a lot of extra help. So we'd have a lot of interns and part-time workers. And, you know, I, I've shared this before, but my chef used to literally keep a stack of applications, you know, this high on his desk because an internship at the Playboy Mansion is unpaid. And there would be a stack of applicants that just wanted to be there, wanted to be in California, wanted to be in LA, wanted to work mm-hmm. for a celebrity that were willing to come in and give their hours. So when we had parties, we had a lot of extra hands on deck. And if you were part of the team that was putting the party together, you are in charge of certain stations. And then there's a couple of us that make sure that we're also circulating the party to make sure 
everything's copacetic with all the different stations. So I started off as a junior chef. So absolutely just preparing food. You're just firing off, firing off, preparing food, walking it out. And that's kind of it. And then, you know, in short time, I was also running some of these parties, helping to run or managing the food production for some of these parties. And so my responsibilities changed. And as your responsibilities change, and if you're in any time you're in a management position, then you aren't you aren't necessarily right there on the grill. You are part of the time, but not the whole time. Did you have yeah. much interaction with Hef and his girlfriends, or were you mostly communicating through a house manager or something like that? We definitely had communication with the playmates, with the guests, um, with the girlfriends, with Hef. Hef didn't come into the kitchen that much, but you know. I did his Sunday pool days and that was a much, much smaller group. And so there was a lot more communication that way as well. And it's a kitchen, you know, so it's a part of the house. So people come mm. through and they get no different than any other kitchen. They may call down for things that they need, but sometimes you just come in and they tell you what they need. And so I absolutely had interaction with, with everyone. So that was around the time that you had discovered some inflammation in your own body and you realized how much of a toll your parents' health situation took on you. Can you talk a little bit about that? It had kind of just been there, you know, because we went straight from our daddy passed away and then two months later, our mom was diagnosed. So it was was really intense for those two, three years. And then I went from that into realizing I was going to go to culinary school and kind of going through that process. So I had some health issues that would, that would come up and I didn't really put two and two together, you know, because I didn't even really understand what inflammation really meant yet. You know, it was just, I don't even know if as a society, we really understood how inflammation can really be the source of so many different types of diseases and illnesses and ailments and issues. And so I was getting sick every year, sort of right after the holidays, but the holidays are also when you kind of work the most, especially in my industry, everyone, you're catering. I mean, between, between catering and cooking and, and making food to be prepared or to be dropped off or picked up. I mean, that's sort of the time of the year that you make the most of, you know, your entire year's worth of income. So I just kind of, just kind of, it just became a baseline that I would get severely sick right after Christmas because I would do other people's Christmases and Thanksgivings and holidays. And so I started to get sick. And every time I got sick, I would take antibiotics because that's what my doctors gave me. And what would happen is maybe my flu would pass, but then I'd get some other kind of infection and it was just layering on top of itself until finally. And then of course, just life and different things happened with the family. Other people got sick and other issues came up with the family that kind of added on to the stress. And the stress is not something that I was mitigating or having any sort of mindful practices around. It was just sort of like, all right, bring it. I can do anything. So if you give it to me, I can handle it. And that was sort of how I lived for many years. And then finally, my body just sort of broke down. And I had had surgery in my chest and my body didn't respond well to it. So what happened was I had to have surgery to kind of take out all this damaged tissue 
from the inflammation. Yeah, so much inflammation. So inflammation can cause scarring. This is like systemic inflammation. So mm-hmm. systemic inflammation can cause infections, can cause disease. For me, it caused my fascia and my scar tissue in different parts of my body to almost like overheal itself. And I just kind of call it damaged tissue. It is in a way almost like an autoimmune. It's, it's like your body's over responding. What are the symptoms of that? How did you know that you needed surgery? So getting sick was definitely one of the symptoms. Like you kind of had this baseline that you just didn't feel well. And I didn't look like I didn't feel well. I just kind of had this baseline where constantly exhausted, constantly not feeling well, even though you might not be able to tell because of I was young in my lifestyle. I also had a lot of pain. What happened was, and some people may already know this, your fascia is a matrix throughout your body. So if there's an area of your body where the fascia is cut and there's scar tissue that forms, it can actually pull and create pain in different parts of your body just from mm. that one area. This mm. is common if you've done any kind of body work or if you've done myofascial or even chiropractic work, chiropractors can explain that to you. But for me, my pain was everywhere. So I had really, really terrible back pain. And I thought that was quite common to happen with chefs because my chef de cuisine and my sous chef both had back problems. So many friends of mine, because you're on your feet, anywhere from 10 to 12 to 14, sometimes 16 hours a day. So back issues were just what was very common in my industry. And so I didn't really think that much of it, except that it's just par for the course if you're a chef, right? But it was my back, my shoulders. Actually, even now, years later, like my shoulders still curve forward because of all of them. It, it, mm. you know, I've had so many surgeries, but my shoulders just naturally curve forward a little bit. And I have to overcompensate to make them look like they're straight. But if even if I'm in a relaxed position, even if I'm sitting what feels straight to me, my shoulders are curved forward. So that's what was happening was all this tissue and all this fascia is pulling. So my back, my shoulders, my chest, everywhere, it was just in constant pain. And also just the soreness that comes with it, all of that. So I ended up having to have surgery just to basically cut out some of this scar tissue, this tissue. It was essentially hardening. So if you have ever felt like a scar, I don't know if you have a scar, but you know how an area of the scar supposed to be keloids, uh, which means the body's sort of overhealing itself in an area where there's maybe a cut, it -hmm. feels hard and there's really no give, right? So it was basically like my chest, my shoulders, and my back everything kind of hurt to move. And you had to have like a dozen of these surgeries and you almost died a couple of times. Like what what was, no. So I had one and it was just to like cut out some of this tissue. It wasn't supposed to be a big surgery. It was just go in, cut out some of this tissue that had hardened, had no give. Right. But I got an infection from it. So Uh. from that surgery, I got MRSA, which is MRSA, It's a deadly staph infection. It's resistant to most all antibiotics, except for maybe a handful of them. That's why I ended up having to have all these surgeries. And the thing is, what's interesting is 
it's not uncommon that people get MRSA from the hospital or from an OR, even though it's a sterilized space. Mm -hmm. It's very common for people to actually get these type of bacteria, infections, deadly infections from the hospital. So, so I got mine basically from the OR. And that became my journey was to try and get this infection out. And meanwhile, the whole thing with my inflammation and when you have an infection, that inflammation, you're not, it's, it's just getting worse, you know, it's not getting better. And so that was why I ended up having so many surgeries was to, at that point, get this infection out of me. And after my fourth surgery, that was when I had a situation where I did almost die. I had a massive hematoma on 12 days. Internal bleeding. Yeah, so a hematoma is when you're bleeding internally. Uh, For me, at that point, I had had several surgeries, and they were taking out this tissue, this damaged tissue, and I had lost so much of my own that they were grafting tissue in. And when they're grafting it in, they're stitching it in. So they're taking donor tissue, and and they're sewing it inside your your body cavity to replace all that's been removed. So one of those stitches tore my upper muscle, but it was a slow tear at first. And so we weren't aware, you know, post off the first few days, you're still kind of, you're still bleeding, had drains. And my doctor didn't think anything was wrong. Seven, 10 days post op, I still had a little bit of blood in my drains. Still very weak, didn't feel quite right. But there was no reason for us to think that there was anything wrong. And then day 12, post-op, it was a Saturday. That tear went from a little tear to a big tear. And I started bleeding internally into, actually, my chest. My chest Were you taking time off of work during all of these surgeries and whatnot? Or did you have to work so you can get your insurance? Like what was going on in the background to help facilitate all this healing that you're doing? So I was working a ton. I am well aware that I am known to work a lot and there will be people that will call me a workaholic. So I'm, I'm going to, I call you prolific. You were prolific in your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So I was working a lot. And I only gave myself enough downtime that I thought was necessary to recover. So, you know, after the first surgery, I thought, okay, two, two and a half weeks. Gave myself two, two and a half weeks. And it's because there are these narratives that we have. So it's just like, it's not like I have cancer. Both my parents had cancer. So whatever it is that I'm going through, it is nothing like they went through. So I'm alive. I'm fine. Let's go in, fix this, and then get back to life. And that was how I was treating my health and my stuff. So after the surgery were... After every surgery, I gave myself about two, two and a half weeks. And the one where I had MRSA, by the 14th day, I was already in New York, I think. I was on set working. I had not told my clients that I was having surgery. I figured I only need a couple weeks. 
so, <laughs> so I don't have to, to recover from one. internal bleeding that almost yeah. killed me. Well, this is that was number four. <laughs> number two is the one where that happened. Then I had a third and then a fourth. So every time I had a surgery, I would just kind of not book myself for two, three weeks and allow myself to recover. There was one surgery I gave myself, I think it was like a month. And I was stressing out the whole time because I was thinking I wasn't going to get back. My clients weren't going to come back. I wasn't serving my clients. I wasn't serving my people. All old narratives. But that's what I went through during that time. So when I was super sick, I felt like I was sick, but I was still working. And my surgeon said, you're fine. You're just probably weak. We gave you antibiotics. But the antibiotics they gave me were they didn't address the MRSA because they didn't realize it's one. So fast forward when this happened and I almost died, that was a whole that was a whole another thing. I was down for months. I was down mm. for months because I'd lost so much blood. I'd lost two liters of blood. The whole day, even though I've shared the story before, it's still surreal if I really allow myself to be present in that moment. Or in that, it's not even moment, moments. It was a period of time of a couple hours. Actually, I had clients that really, they saved my life. I mean, I, I have my angels and I'm sure my dad is also looking out for me. When I started to bleed and I was bleeding and now I'm bleeding internally and there's nowhere for the blood to go. So your skin is stretching. I mean, there were so many things going on. It was really terrifying. And then my clients had called a surgeon that they knew that was a medical director at Cedars and and everything literally, if I, you know, when I talk about it, I go back and I think I was so divinely protected because here I was, my surgeon, who this is the fourth go with him, and he hasn't brought in an infectious disease doctor, which is really the proper protocol. And I didn't know better. He hadn't brought in an infectious disease doctor to help him with this process. He jetted off to Vegas or somewhere. I wasn't returning calls from a call center. I ended up calling one of my clients they personally, they knew the medical director at Cedars, which is 20, 25 minutes away from Santa Monica, probably 25. Mm-hmm. And then they came and got me. He opened up on a Saturday afternoon. He had like a trauma unit in here in Santa Monica, 10 blocks from my apartment. And he, he took his own leap of faith because he's just a doctor. He just practiced the oath that he took because... I was a massive liability. I lost all this blood. There's no blood to transfuse. The OR isn't even prepped. And he just did it. He made the decision and he just did it. And he opened me up. He found the bleed. He stopped the bleed and showed me the blood. And then wow. he said, you have to go back to, you know, your surgeon to, to fix, you know, what happened. Like all I could do was just go in there and find the bleed but he saved my life and it's taken me sharing that story so many times because first I couldn't share the story at all I would just gloss over it until I was called out for not sharing that story because I just wanted to focus on where I am now which is I'm all better I'm all better mm-hmm. now I'm fine and this is where I'm on and because I was called out by a good friend of mine a good girlfriend of mine she said, you can't gloss over what happened to you here. It's important. And it's important for people to know. So I started sharing that. And when I hear what I say, when I hear my words, I'm thinking, first of all, what are the chances that my clients picked up the phone that day? What are the chances that 
they know someone who's a medical director at Cedars, what are the chances of the doctor they happen to know, who's not only an amazing doctor, he happens to do trauma too. And he has an office 10 blocks from my house, which took five minutes to get to as opposed to 25. Because at that point, I was just sitting there waiting and bleeding out. I was waiting for my own doctor to call. I was terrified of going to the ER because his medical assistant had called and said, don't go to the ER, you'll get an infection. So if you're Mm -hmm. talking to someone who has MRSA and you're telling them not to go to the ER because they're going to get an infection, I don't know what to do at that point. And I'm so out of body because the pain is so intense that I was just trying not to pass out. And for them to come get me, he has this place 10 bucks away. And then he makes the decision that even though it's massive liability, he doesn't know what's going to happen with me. There isn't blood to transfuse. I've lost a ton. My hemoglobin slow. All these things. His anesthesiologist is like, what are you doing? I still remember her energy in the room. I'm like, what are we doing? And he did it. That's divine. You know, there's just so many factors that had to come all together to make my moment today possible. That even though I don't think my girlfriend at the time when she gave me a hard time for not sharing, her giving me that awareness and having me go back and relive this very, very painful experience. It was not just painful, it was terrifying. It was physically painful, but it was terrifying. Me wanting to skip the terror and the trauma, me wanting to skip those moments because I just want to focus on where I am after I recovered, I actually didn't even realize that divinity you know, mm. for a while because I was so trying to just focus on just focus on the positive, you know, that whole like focus on the positive and it, and there's so much more to every part of your journey, whether it's painful or terrifying um, or traumatic or sad. There's so much more there that you learn, not just about yourself, but about the people around you and about God or the universe that you can miss if you don't go back to those moments because they're so uncomfortable. Well, shout out to your dad because you guys are keeping him really busy (laughs) (laughs) on the other realm. (laughs) But also, this was very pivotal for you Mm -hmm. in getting you more interested in nutrition and functional nutrition specifically, Mm -hmm. and then eventually into culinary alchemy. And I also want to just mention for the record, for the listeners who don't know you personally or your story, is that at this point, you're you're working with some pretty high-end clients. Mm-hmm. You're working with Carrie Washington and Puff Daddy and Jerry Bruckheimer. But there's one of your clients, Gary Marshall, oh. who's the guy who created Happy Days. And he told you something. He said, don't disappear. You can take a little break, but don't ever disappear. The world needs you. What do you mean by that? Or what did you take from that? Yeah. So oh, I miss Gary. Gary was like, he was my client, but he was also a mentor. And he was like my grandpa. What I would do is I would have these surgeries and I would disappear. You know, I would disappear for a couple of weeks. Some some clients, I told them, I let them know because they've been with me from the start. I'm going to have to have surgery again. So I'm not going to be available for a couple of weeks, you know, probably not longer than three or four. And just during this whole process, when this happened with my fourth surgery, when this 
experience happened. And then I was unable to work as a chef. I couldn't lift my arm. I couldn't, I was, I was so, I'd lost some, I was literally gray. Like, like coming out of that, I was gray. Where I was stitched up looked like Frankenstein. I mean, I was just in a dark place where I didn't understand. You kind of fall into the hole. I'm a really good person. I'm a really good person. All I've kind of done is do things to help my family and work. Like, why why are these things? You know, you go into the why. I didn't allow myself to ask why when my dad was sick. I never allowed myself to ask why or what if. But here I was in my own experience going, why does this this happen? Like, I don't understand. And even though that time period is what shifted me into culinary alchemy and shifted me into a new chapter in my life, I was still in this very, very dark place. And I want to share and really emphasize that I was because it's not like when you go through a dark place once, you never go back again. It's like the ebb and flow of life. I have been in valleys, you know, in dark places in my life even since then. And I think that's just the journey of life and us as humans and the human experience. And so with Gary, I had experienced a couple other valleys. You know, I wouldn't say it was like as dark, but darker chapters in my life. And I would disappear. I would Mm -hmm. just be unavailable because I couldn't keep up the front. You know, I could, it took too much energy to keep up this person that my clients or the world expected to see because I either felt so sick because of this bacteria, this infection that was inside of me that would just bring my baseline levels of energy to where you wouldn't expect just looking at me, but I would just be so exhausted or just kind of dealing with my own experiences and my own emotions and traumas that I wasn't I wasn't properly dealing with in a healthy way. So I hadn't yet really gone I hadn't yet really gone into spirituality or personal development or any of that. I was still I was in this like survival mode for a really long time. And so as long as I could deliver what someone else needed, so as long as whoever is opposite from me is happy. It, it seemed like I was doing the right thing and I was doing okay. So when life got too much for me, when I just didn't have the energy to show up the way someone needed me to show up or, or how they perceived of me on a regular basis, I would disappear. The thing is, someone like Gary Marshall is very wise. He, you know, he was in, he was, in his seventies, you know, eighties when he passed, but seventies when I worked for him. And he just seemed so much in life already. His grandfather, I mean, he was a grandpa to so many. He knew a thing or two about life and about people and about experiences and about hills and valleys. He just basically talked me through it because he was the person on the movie set. So he was, when I had that Mercer and I went to go work, it was for his movie. I hadn't told him that I didn't tell him I was having surgery, didn't tell him I was sick, didn't tell him I was sick the entire time I was working. 
So they didn't understand my behavior because I was so, I was so exhausted. I would just go do my thing and then I would disappear into my trailer and I, I wasn't friendly. And I, you know, what didn't seem like I was grateful for the experience. I would just go do my part and then disappear. And I would just be laying in my trailer, just trying to get through. I didn't share any of that with them. So it seemed like I had disappeared. So not just presently, but like me, like my person who they knew, who Serena had kind of disappeared. And so when you said, don't disappear like the world needs you, I think he's not just saying it's the reason why that was so important to me. It was that I took it not just for me. I feel like that, that applies for all of us. We so often, or at least, someone who has my same sort of personality or tendencies, you know, we take on so much, especially as caretakers or someone who wants to just, who's very independent. We don't allow our community to support us. We don't allow community in. We don't allow people to support us or help us. And I was very much doing that and just wanting to do things on my own, not wanting to be a burden not wanting to put anyone else out, not wanting people to worry about me because I knew what worry felt like. By doing that, I also wasn't allowing someone else the grace of helping, mm. the grace of being supportive, the grace of being loving, any of those things. And I just didn't see it that way. And Gary just felt that I had something special and a light that he felt was something that was healing for him and his family. And when I would disappear, he would just remind me that they're always there to help support. And it was just like a, a life reminder that we were never alone. And we always have support in some way, whether it's our friends, our community, even online, that there's always support and that we matter. And, we ma and that each one of us matters so much that we have to allow other people to kind of help serve us the way we serve them. That was a reminder that he gave me. And I know he meant it towards me, about me, and how much he and the whole, you know, his company and the family love and appreciate me. But I know Gary, and I know that anytime he gives advice, it's not really just you. It's life advice. You know, it's mm -hmm. life advice that carries much further than just me. And that was... That was something that I that I really cherished so much about Gary because that's how he gave advice. What is culinary alchemy? Culinary alchemy is it's just it's my method, you know, my healing programs for really healing and optimizing the body by way of integrative and functional nutrition, because that's how we address the physical body, and then spiritual nutrition, so that's how we address the energetic body. So in my experience and just whatever everything that I've been through, I really believe that you can do everything you can from a physical place, you know, especially with fitness and you can do everything you can from um, a nutritional place with food, but there's also addressing our body, our energy body, our energetic body, whatever you want to call it, your spiritual body, which definitely includes your mental, emotional wellness, but there is a life force that circulates through our body and 
And I feel that there's a way for us to support that body as well. So we're really supporting our whole system. And I use food and practices with food and supplements as the vehicle to kind of get people to really understand and have a practice that serves their whole food. Let's say I'm listening to this in Topeka, Kansas, or mm-hmm. in Nova Scotia, and mm-hmm. it's just me, and I'm not making a whole lot of money, and but I want to apply some of the principles of culinary alchemy. Can you just mm-hmm. walk us through maybe what a, a day in the life of someone who lives this, I'm assuming it's a lifestyle, what they would experience and, and what they could curate in their daily intake of sustenance to take advantage of, of the culinary alchemy principles? Practice, yes. So, so give me two things I'm, I'm going to focus on. And one is the understanding that our physical body, our organ systems with culinary alchemy, there's a teaching and the, and the understanding that our physical body and the organ systems in our physical body are in alignment with our energy centers or our chakras. And for someone who may not understand what the chakra is, you kind of have to understand the, the first principle that energy is everything, right? So universal energy is everything and energy is what connects us. And we have more than seven chakras. We're just going to seven focus on the seven basic ones to kind of keep it very simple. And those seven basic chakras run from the root, you know, from the base of our spine all the way to the top of our head. And I'm sure you guys have probably heard um, Light and maybe other other guests talk about the chakras. But when I'm talking about the chakra and the energy centers that govern each area of the body, they are actually in alignment to your physical organs in that area. So let's say we're talking about your root chakra that kind of governs your blood cells and that's like the lower half of your body, your legs, your joints, um, your feet, you know, your, your immune system, that which grounds you and keeps you stable and safe and secure. And there are certain foods that you can eat that really kind of are grounding foods. And those are foods that I say, foods from the earth, right? And I can go through the whole list of phytonutrients as well that are kind of online with each, but we'll definitely be here for hours. <laughs> but <laughs> to make it simple for you guys, if you remember to eat the rainbow, and I know it sounds so cliche, but from my practice and the way I, and, and with what I teach and the protocols that I design with culinary alchemy, if you can remember to try to eat whole foods that cover the colors of the rainbow, you will actually hit every chakra, but you'll also hit the needs, the phytonutrient needs, pretty much of every organ system. And so that just kind of keeps it very simple for someone who is not, like you don't want to remember a whole list of fruits and vegetables and grains, and I can give you a whole list of 100 things that you can eat, and these are the 30 in each color. But if you can just make an effort, if you do it in one bowl, that's great. In one meal, that's fantastic. But so not, Fruit Loops, a bowl of Fruit Loops covers oh, the whole yes. spectrum. Whole, whole foods, whole foods, <laughs> whole foods. Um, someone else said that to me. They're like, what are you lucky terms? I'm like, whole foods. Um, but yeah, whole foods. Skittles. If you get a bag of Skittles, you're good. <laughs> so, you know, no Skittles, you guys, unless they're like fruit, fruit. You can have your nature Skittles. But yeah, all the colors of the rainbow. 
you'll be able to support every chakra that way, but you'll also be able to support the different needs of every part, every organ system kind of along the way. And I know I'm making a very kind of general statement, but without being too scientific, this at least covers your basis if you're if you're somewhere where you don't necessarily have, you know, farmer's market, you are going to your local grocery stores, pick colorful, you know, just try and pick fruits and vegetables that cover every color of the rainbow. And if you're someone that's not plant-based and eat animal protein, have really high quality you know, free range, antibiotic free, you know, what's a good animal protein to kind of pair with your main meals. The other thing I'll talk about that you can do no matter where you are on the planet is the intentional energy that you carry with you when you are preparing the food or when you're consuming the food. So if you guys already have a gratitude practice, which I'm going to assume that you do since you're listening to this podcast. And if you don't, can start any time, right? But I'd love for you to take that gratitude practice just sort of one step further. So whether or not you are going through a list in your head or you're writing it down or you're saying it out loud, just pick one or two things on that list. It could be a person, it could be a place, it could be your favorite dessert that your grandma used to make. Whatever it is, just sit with that one thing And really sit with it in gratitude until you feel a response from your physical body. So if you're thinking about someone that you love, you can smell them now. Or you can feel the warmth of them when they're near you. Or if you're thinking about a food, you know, maybe you salivate, you know, because you're you're smelling that blueberry crumble that your grandmother used to make, that only she can make it taste that way. No one can. You have these memories. Like that's powerful. So now you've connected your physical body, your emotional, your mental, your energetic body, right? In gratitude. You can then take this energy and now that you know how it feels like and you can connect to it, when you go into the kitchen and you're preparing something to drink or something to eat, something that you're going to put back into your body or something that you're going to put in someone else's body, just take a moment to just put that energy that you just connected with. So for you, you, you know how it feels like physically, your body tells you. And you connect to that energy and now direct it towards that which you're going to put back into your own body or that which you're going to put into someone else's body. Mm. It's something that doesn't cost a thing. And what's magical is that as you're doing this, as you're taking this moment to direct that energy, no matter what your state has was before that moment, you are shifting your body, your physical body, into this parasympathetic state. So now your body is ready to receive. Your digestive system is getting prepared to receive because you've shifted into the state. No matter, and maybe you already were. You just came from meditating or or whatever it is, and you're kind of already in this parasympathetic relaxate, and you're going to go have your tea. Or maybe you're not. Maybe you're running from your computer over to the kitchen to get whatever, or from you know, you're getting the kids ready for school. Just taking that moment to direct that energy into that which you're putting back into your body or in the body of someone that you love will make a profound difference. And so, so often we talk about love being that secret ingredient. And again, almost cliche, right? But what does that mean, really? That means it's someone that 
let's say you're you're trying to replicate that blueberry crumble that your grandmother makes that she gave you the whole recipe for and she swears to you she did not change out anything right she gave you every single piece she didn't leave anything out and it doesn't taste the way she makes it you even bought the same brand everything to the tea even though it's not organic because she's old school she didn't use organic it doesn't taste the same because there is an energy from her that goes into the preparation of that dish, of that food, knowing who will receive it, her thinking about how they'll receive it, her thinking about the people, how much she loves you. That is an unspoken energy. And you can call it love. You can call it universal energy. You can call it light. That will have a profound difference on both your physical and your energetic body if you just do that one thing different, no matter where you are in the world. God, I love that. Please tell me there's a book or a masterclass that's coming soon. So yes. how, how can people get more of this information? Yes, well, actually, I am putting together a Connor Alchemy masterclass. I'm really excited about it. And a book is in the process. Stay tuned for that. So my website is serenaloves.com. And my Instagram is chef. Serena Poon. And that is pretty much my handle for all, all my social platforms, but I'm most active on Instagram. And those are pro- those are the two places you'll be able to find the most information and find a way to connect with me there. You can text me, email me, or send me a DM. They all work. So. And that's one of the things that I really love about what you're doing is that you are really active on your platforms. You have a TV show, you have a podcast, you're putting out a ton of great content. And we didn't even get into the story of how you became a Reiki master, which is how you know about the chakras and all this energy. That's a really fascinating story as well that uh, maybe we'll have to talk about in the next podcast conversation. I have one one more question for you, though. Mm -hmm. Giving everything you've gone through at this point, the near-death experience, the loss of a parent, other parent getting diagnosed with cancer. By the way, did your mom and your family come back around now that you've become oh, this yeah. sort of celebrity chef? Are you like the, t- oh, yeah. <laughs> the talk of the family now? They're yeah, all proud when, of you. When I, yeah, when I had a couple names to add on to my list of celebs when it wasn't just half, then all of a sudden, oh, oh she, she's a chef. And then it, then it became a thing. So I, I went from, oh, she's still in school. So she's, she's a chef. <laughs> <laughs> so. A couple of premieres. Come on, mom, <laughs> to this premiere with me. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. My mom is so funny. She doesn't even... Extra tickets, you guys. Like, mom doesn't even like to go to these things anymore. She's she's quite spoiled. (laughs) Okay. So, my question is, after all of that, how are you now defining success for yourself? So, for me, I feel that I connect success with peace. I feel that having peace, like a sense of peace. So... If I have a sense of peace and grace about whatever it is that I'm doing, I am enjoying it. I'm loving what's around me. I'm loving what I've created. It doesn't mean that I'm not wanting to do more. It just means that I'm just in a place of peace, which is also kind of sacred in a way. You know, Mm. I feel that when you're in this place of peace and to be really honest like i would say i don't really do resolutions or new new year's resolutions that's not really my thing but i do set goals for myself for me peace 
And this is for the last three years. So my last surgery was three years ago. And that was what I wanted to achieve. You know, that was my resolution. That was my goal for lack of a better term. You know, that I just wanted to really have peace and be at peace with my body, myself, my relationships, what I was doing, what I was creating, my dreams. Just having that sense to me is success. And I can say that I definitely have that, and I not before, not not twenty four seven. There's definitely moments where I, I'm I'm not at peace, and then that that allows me an opportunity to kind of reflect and grow, and having that feeling of being really at peace with what my life is, what life is around me, those are around me. That feels like success to me. I want to loop this back around to your childhood <laughs> to wrap this up. And the thing that's standing out for me now is this fascination with archaeology and mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what that really means is someone who's down for adventure, who is looking to discover new things that could give context and perspective to where we are right now. And mm-hmm. so in a way you're excavating. And I feel like, after hearing your whole story, your life has really been about excavating the goodness out of food, out of connection, out of gratitude, and bringing all that together for the greater purpose of healing, healing yourself first, and then ultimately healing your clients and healing the world. And so I just want to acknowledge you for really having the courage to go off on your own like that. I mean, that's, that's no small thing. You know, when your whole family is against you and you make this promise and then you have this, you get caught up in the grip of this calling that you just can't ignore. And I feel like there's so many people who have that calling and they don't take the leap of faith because they don't want to stand out too much or they don't want to go against the grain of what people are expecting of them. And so you took that leap and Although the path wasn't smooth because nobody's path is smooth. Every step of the way, just like in Indiana Jones, you know, you're having to run away from spiders and snakes and all this. But it's always leading you exactly where you need to go. Yeah, that's such a great way to look at it. I love that visual use. I mean, that comparison is true. And I didn't even share with you how I got third degree burns across my face from the kitchen <laughs> of the Playboy Mansion. You know, things happen where you're like, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Because that was the whole thing too. But that that's really what the path looks like. It looks like an Indiana Jones movie, you know, it pitfalls does. and all kinds of crazy stuff. So it does. And you're here to tell the tale. And so I just want to thank you for coming on and being so vulnerable and open about all of that. Cause I know I'm sure some of it isn't easy to talk about, but I think a lot of people are going to feel inspired by hearing your story. And so if there's anything that I can do to help get this book out sooner, this masterclass or amplify any of your work, just let me know. And yeah, I look forward to getting a chance to cross path. We've seen each other in person a few times at Craig and Sarah's events mostly, but I hope I get a chance to see you again soon yeah, the next time I come to LA now yeah, that things are opening know. back up. Do you know so, when you're coming back? Not yeah. yet, but I'll definitely keep you posted. Okay. But thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. I appreciate you so much, truly. Thank you for your acknowledgement and, and for the time. You know, you've been so generous with your time and just 
creating this space and giving me the opportunity to share the story. So I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Chef Serena. To learn more about her work, follow her on social media at Chef Serena Poon. That's C-H-E-F-S-E-R-E-N-A-P-O-O-N. And from there, you can link to her website as well as to her other offerings like her new Just Add Water service, which is a superfood snack that she has developed that you just add water to. And I'll put all of the links, including the links to her websites and whatnot, in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're on my website, you may also see a link to my book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. Many of the stories in the book are drawn from my five years of sending out these daily inspirational emails to my subscribers and followers. And you can also subscribe to those emails while you're on my website. And my final ask to you is to leave a rating or review for this podcast, which you could do really quickly by just glancing down at your screen. You'll see the podcast app and the name of the podcast at the end of the tunnel, which should be in purple. Click on that, scroll down past the previous episodes, you'll see five blank stars. Just tap the one on the right and you've left a five-star rating. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you back here next week with another story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith, and I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.